So we are in Joshua chapter 7 and Joshua chapter 8, the very beginning couple of verses. And if you're new with us, um, one of our, our commitments as a church is expository preaching. And basically what expository preaching means is if you preach from Joshua chapter 6, the next thing you preach from is Joshua chapter 7 and 8. And so this is one of our uh, basic commitments. And basically what it means is that we gotta, we got to preach through all the Scripture, even the portions of Scripture that may be a little bit more difficult for us, and try to understand what God is saying for us. Because we take seriously that God has said that all Scripture is breathed out by His Spirit and profitable for our teaching, for our being challenged, for our encouragement and our exhortation. And so today we come to Joshua chapter 7. And this is a difficult word from Joshua 7, in the beginning of 8. Because primarily the message of Joshua chapter 7 is about sin and its consequences in the life of God's people. And yet we also see in this passage that there is a door of hope. So let us pray. Father, we come to you because we need to hear from you. And you have told us that your word is meant for our teaching, for our encouragement, for our challenging. That we might be conformed more into the image of your Son. And so, Lord God, we pray that you would show us our wounds. But more so, Lord, that you would bind them up and heal them by your loving Son and by His Spirit. It's in His name we pray. Amen. So at the beginning of this chapter, we see the beginning of the sin of God's people right here. It says in verse 1 that the narrative abruptly changes from the account of the victory of Jericho to the defeat of God's people in Ai. And the reason is very clear for us from the beginning of verse 1. And it says, But the people of Israel broke faith in regard to the devoted things. For Achan, the son of Carmi, the son of Zabdi, the son of Zerah, of the tribe of Judah, took some of the devoted things. And the anger of the Lord burned against the people. You remember just before, in, in the chapter before, that the Lord had just commanded Joshua in, in chapter 6, verse 19, He had said that all silver and all the gold and every vessel of bronze and iron are holy to the Lord. That is, they were to be set apart for Him. And that they shall go into the treasury of the Lord. They are holy and they are devoted to Him as a tithe, so to speak. See, one preacher put it this way, that we see in Joshua, he says that as surely as the victory of Jericho belongs to the Lord, so do the spoils of victory belong to the Lord. But right away, the people of Israel took what had been devoted to the Lord and they kept some of the spoils of victory for themselves. And then we see the sin continues. You see, probably Joshua, right after this, had not prayed. He had not looked to the Lord for guidance because he is unaware of the very problem that is in their midst. And he sends out the spies to the city of Ai, just like he had done with Jericho. And like he did with Jericho, they, they spy it out. And they come back, and this time they say, you know, it's, it's really a small town. 
we don't need to send to everybody. We only need like 3,000 men. We can handle it. And you see then pretty quickly that the people are guilty of pride and self-confidence, assuming that God is automatically on their side. But remember, Joshua had just experienced that time with the commander, and the commander of the Lord's army had just told him that you must pursue my kingdom, my way. It is about following God's causes, God's way, and they have just assumed that God was automatically on their side again. And we see it, one of the implications, as Manuel pointed out last week, One of the implications of pursuing God's causes, God's way, is that we pray for guidance before we rush into a cause. Just like Joshua did not do this time. He rushed into it without seeking the Lord and with this automatic self-confidence. And there's no sense that Joshua consulted the Lord. See, one of the ways that we demonstrate in our lives prideful self-confidence is a failure to consult God in prayer and sit before Him and look at Him for directions before we go into anything. In our morning, before we start our day, I oftentimes want to just rush into what I have to do. And how is it even more so for the big things that we have to do, the big decisions that have to be made? We vision and we plan and we talk to others. And yet, so oftentimes we get distracted and forget to even consult God on the matter beforehand. And with Joshua... This lack of prayer and this sense of pride of their recent victory kept them from seeing the sin that was the root cause of their defeat, which was taking of the things that had been devoted to God. And after their defeat... They send these men up and they defeat and they come home basically running home crying to their mother. And Joshua begins to lament. He rips his clothes. He sits in the dust. He puts the dust all over him. He sits in the ground and he mourns. But his mourning is not a godly one. Because he begins to complain, and he complains the exact same way that the people of Israel had complained when they were in the wilderness. Look at what he says in verse 7. Alas, O Lord, why have you brought us out? Uh, Why have you brought this people over the Jordan at all? Why have you done this to give us into the hands of the Amorites? Have you done this to destroy us? And he feels bad because of the shame of their defeat. And he begins to blame God. And then he even goes so far as to say, And God, what about your great name? What about your glory? And you see what God says immediately. He responds, Get up! Get up! Don't you see that there is sin that I am concerned about? You have broken my covenant. You have taken from the devoted things that were for my glory, that were mine, and you lied about it. What about my great name, Joshua? Is what the Lord says. 
See, oftentimes we complain because sin makes our life harder and of the shame that it brings us. But we see God. He sees the sin here. He sees the issue. And He deals with it. He is concerned about dealing with it. You remember Acts chapter 5, what happens next. What happens is like similar with Acts chapter 5. This family, Ananias and Sapphira, they bought a piece, they, they sold a piece of property that they had. And they said, we give it all to the Lord. But they lied about it and kept some from themselves. And Peter says to them, you have not lied to men. You have lied to the Holy Spirit. Do you know that you have lied to God? You see, we cannot lie and hide our sin to the Spirit of God. He sees it. He sees it. And this is what happens in the text in the very next thing. Basically, they're going around the circle saying, who stole the cookie from the cookie jar? Who, me? Couldn't be. But God goes around and He goes from the tribe and says, from the tribe of Judah, you stole from the cookie from the cookie jar. And then He goes to the clan of the Zerahites and then from the clan of the Zerahites to the household which harbored Achan. And He says, you are the man who took from the cookie jar, so to speak. You took your hand from what was from given, devoted to the Lord. He says, do not hide what you did. God always catches us with our hands in the cookie jar. And so when Achan has been found out, when he has been found out, he explains what happened, why it happened. In verse 21, he says, I have sinned against the God of Israel. In verse 21, he says, This is what I did. When I saw the spoil, a beautiful cloak from Shinar, and 200 shekels of silver, and a bar of gold weighing 50 shekels. When I saw these things, then I coveted them, and I took it. You see, the problem, the problem of Achan's sin comes down to his covetousness. And we see how it started with his eyes. He says, I saw this beautiful thing. I saw these shekels of silver. I saw this gold. And then it moves to his heart. And so I coveted. I thought, I need them. I need these things. And it moved then to his hands and he acted upon it. What the root of it, this is exactly the same thing that Adam and Eve did in the garden. They saw, they coveted, and so they took. And on a spiritual level, this is a matter of spiritual self-centeredness. This is what covetousness is. It is a matter of self-centeredness. See, when Achan took some of the spoils, some of the things devoted to God's treasury... He is taking what belongs to the glory and worship of God alone. And He is saying, God, that is not for You. Not You, God. I want that for me. I don't want You to have it, God. I want those things. I want that glory. It is a spiritual self-centeredness that He is facing. No, God, not for your glory. I want it for myself. 
And this here is a great spiritual danger and sin. That we, like Achan, have it in our heart to desire to steal from the very things that are for the glory of God. That we want to take what belongs to God for His glory alone. And we want to take and hoard that glory for ourselves. John Calvin explains how this is in our heart to steal, to seek to steal from the glory of God. In a little book on the Christian life, he says, he quotes from Jesus, he says, Our Lord has taught us, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Which is to pray, your glory, O Lord. But he goes on to say, But our lust is furious and our greed is limitless in pursuing wealth and honors, chasing after power, heaping up riches, and gathering all those vain things which seem to give us grandeur and glory. But on the other hand, we greatly fear and hate poverty, obscurity, and humility. And so we avoid these realities in every way. One of the ways that I think we commonly try to avoid these realities, just like Achan, is by withholding our tithes that God has devoted and called for Himself. You see, in the Scripture, devoted and a tithe is exactly the same thing. It's something that is set apart as holy for the Lord. This is what, Paul, this is what the, the Scriptures in Leviticus 27 are talking about. That what is devoted to the Lord, these money right here in Joshua, these are the Lord's tithes that He has called for His own self. It's the exact same language when He says that all these silver, this gold, this bronze, and iron are devoted to the Lord. They are as a tithe. The spoils are his tithe. And yet, we oftentimes in our culture and in the United States, we want to rebuttal and say, yes, but the New Testament says, give as much as we have decided in our hearts and not reluctantly, but joyfully. This is what Paul says. And we should say, amen. Yes, absolutely. And we Christians who have been given gracious, given so much from Christ, shall we not give abundantly and beyond with joy and cheerfulness in our hearts. And when Paul is talking about that, he's talking about going above and beyond and meeting the needs of the church in Jerusalem who is starving and says, you should give above and beyond cheerfully for them. This is not against, in contrast to tithing. See, Achan stole the gold and he stole the silver that was dedicated for God's treasury and for his own glory. You see, in a way, we can steal from God's glory by withholding the ties that he has claimed for himself. This is true for us as individuals. This is true for us as pastors. And this is true for us corporately as a church body. You see, we may talk about we're not here to build our own glory as a church. We may say we're not here to build our own little kingdoms. But if we as a church can't even give 10% of our own 
income. If we could not do that, the money would speak differently. Because the money speaks louder than our words. And here in Joshua chapter 7, the silver and the gold and the cloak testify against Achan and the people of God. And so our money, just like Achan, will testify if the glory of God really is our goal. And so we see in his spiritual self-centeredness, in his glory-seeking, that there are yet consequences. And one of the great consequences that we see here is that God's people lose the very power of God for victory. You see, God does not and He will not give His power to causes when His glory is not our goal. Verse 12, he says, Because of this sin of them, therefore the people of Israel cannot stand before their enemies. I will be with you no more unless you destroy the devoted things from among you. You see, what we're saying, what God is basically saying is here, is where He does not get the glory, He does not give the power for victory. Is this not what the movie Nacho Libre is all about? I was recently accused of having only watched Nacho Libre ever by some of the children in our church. And I said, I'm a little bit more cultured than that. I have seen Star Wars too. But is that not what the whole story of Nacho Libre is? What's he about this, this, this little this monk who wants to the glory of wrestling and his famous line is don't you want a taste of the glory just a taste of it and the whole time that he is about tasting the glory for himself he is a wimpy wrestler and he goes after eagle eggs trying to find power from these eagle eggs and we can do the same thing trying to find the spirit of God for our own power and finally, Nacho Libre, and this is, this is true, when he realizes that it's not about his stretchy pants, when it's not about his glory, and he realizes that he's going to wrestle to save the orphans for the glory of God, then what happens? He has power in the ring. He learned in a way. That where God does not get the glory, He does not give the power for victory. And is this not true of those missionaries and pastors and godly men and women who you know who had power in their life? Was that they had a zeal for the Lord and for His glory above all things? Is this not true as you have seen it in their lives? I think of a wonderful dear friend of mine who I've told you about before. Her name was Lori Anderson. And she's in her 90s now. But in the 40s, when she was in her 20s, she walked into the Peruvian jungle to a tribe of headhunters and she didn't know if she was going to be killed. She walked into them to share the gospel. And for years, she was rejected by the women of, that, of those people, facing shame from them and rejection. One time she was even attacked by an anaconda. But she stayed. 
and she translated the Scripture. And over 40 years, she saw the Gospel take root in this unreached people group. Where does that kind of staying power come from? It comes when someone has a zeal for the glory of God above their own self. Or you think of the pastor Robert Murray McShane from Scotland in the 1800s who became a pastor and then went on missions to uh, Jerusalem. He struggled with health and he struggled with, uh, with discouragement throughout his life and his life ended at the age of 29. But one thing that happened was when he went as a missionary uh, and, and stopped being a pastor at his little church for a little while, you know what happened? Revival broke out in his church when he was gone. I wonder how that would feel. <laughs> how you would feel about that. But by all accounts, when he came back and he saw that revival had broken out and people came to faith when he was gone, he rejoiced. He rejoiced. Because the night before he was ordained, this is what he wrote in his journal. He said, What shall I fear? If God sees fit to put me in the ministry, who shall keep me back? But if God is not fit, why should I be thrust forward? To Thy service, O Lord, I desire to dedicate myself over and over again. You see, he knew and he experienced power in his ministry because the glory of God was his his passion. And what we see here is that that does not happen. It is lost sight with the people of God. And so the sin of their spiritual self-centeredness and glory-seeking saps all of their spiritual strength. Because of the sin, the people of God could not stand because before their enemies. And this is one of the consequences. And yet we see another consequence of sin in their life is that they stop looking like the people of God. Verse 12 says, They have become devoted for destruction, and I will be with you no more. Isn't that interesting? God says, The people of Israel have become devoted for destruction, just like the unrepentant Canaanites were devoted for destruction. They too have become devoted to destruction. Because, so to speak, the values and gods of the Canaanites have become the exact same values and gods of the Israelites. And this is one of the fundamental consequences of sin. That when we love sin, when we love our sin, we stop resembling God in the world. We stop resembling Christ in the world and we just resemble the world in the world. Because what does that matter here? This is a a matter of syncretism. You see, the people of Israel are starting to take from the values and gods of the Canaanites and they're mixing it with worship of the Lord. This is what would be happening for Achan and his family. And the result when syncretism happens is you become something completely different. I grew up in Guatemala. And in Guatemala, there was a a very obvious syncretism of Mayan spirituality with 
um, forms of Catholicism and evangelicalism. And so it, it, I would go up hiking up these mountains when I was a kid. We'd go hiking up mountains and we'd go hiking up these volcanoes. And when you get to the top, you'd see these altars to different Mayan deities. And people would actually go and they would sacrifice chickens to these altars, to these Mayan gods. And they would put food out for them and they would put beer out for them because apparently the gods like beer too. And some of these people who would go up there would be wearing crosses and they'd be at church on Sunday morning. That's what a picture of syncretism is like. But why would they do that? Why would they do? Why would a farmer who doesn't have enough food to feed his family and who has a child dying from diarrhea go to a Mayan deity that he thinks is going to provide for him? Why would he do that? Well, why wouldn't he do that? Is that not understandable? That he thinks that he going to this Mayan deity is going to help him grow his crops and provide enough food for his children so his children do not die? In that light, syncretism is very understandable. Because he go to these gods so that they can provide, so they can have enough, so their family can be healthy, and so that things can go well and be safe. See, we understand that. We understand it very well. We can mix the American dream and we can mix our American values of prosperity so we can retire and have a happy, healthy family and have good things and safety. And these are not bad things, but we come and we say that these are the essence of our faith in some ways. This is what it means to be a good Christian and a good American. And we come to God expecting that He will give us these things and we call it godly. In that sense, we are no different than Guatemalan farmers or the Israelites or of Achan. But God says, you are breaking my covenant. You do not look like my people in this way and I will be with you no more. He said to the church of Laodicea that had plenty. He said, so because you are lukewarm, you are neither hot nor cold, I will spit you out of my mouth. For you say, I am rich, I have prospered, and I need nothing. Hashtag, I'm blessed. Not realizing that you are wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. And he goes on, Jesus goes on and he pleads with them and he says, you need to come and put on my white garments because you are naked and you are about to be spit out because you do not resemble me. And so we see the danger for God's people ultimately is that the ultimate consequence of sin is of being destroyed, is that of destruction. And this is exactly what happens to Achan and his household. And it is what is in danger of happening to all of Israel unless they repent. Look at verse 24. 
and Joshua and all of the Israelites with him took Achan the son of Zerah and the silver and the cloak and the bar of gold and his sons and daughters and his oxen and donkeys and sheep and his tent and all that he had and they brought them up to the valley of Achor and there they stoned him and his family and he was buried it was destruction complete destruction for Achan and his family and we oftentimes can get so caught up with the fact that they took Achan's family and his animals too and Achan is simply the representative here of his family's sins and his family's idols but the fact that I hope you notice right here is not so much that that his family is with him but that Achan is buried with the objects that were his sin he was buried with the objects of his self-centeredness He was buried with his silver and the cloak and the bar of gold. See, the movement of our sin is always towards destruction. And it will have us destroyed. And it will have us destroyed with it. And the ultimate consequence of sin is being destroyed. Holding on to the very sins that we love. Just like Achan was. Being buried with them. And that is the wrath of God. That is the wrath of God. Greg Beale, who is a scholar on the Bible, comments on God's just judgment here in the Old Testament. It is as if God is saying, okay, you did not want to spend your life in in fellowship with me and my people on this earth? All right, I will give you exactly what you wanted on this earth for eternity. Separation from God and His people. And we see the great consequence of sin and the very wrath of God is to be covered, clutching our sins and our idols and our self-centeredness separate from God for all eternity. And this is the weight of the consequences of sin that is not repented of. And and it is heavy. So why did God then, why did God allow all of His people to suffer the consequences of the people's sin? Why would He do that? Why does God allow us to experience the consequences of our sin? Just yesterday at the park, uh, Matheson and I were there, and there's this kid on the top of the monkey bars. And he's standing on the top of the monkey bars. And his mom says to him, You know the rules. And he yells right back to the mo- his mother, I know the rules, but I just want to have a fun time. And then he fell right through the monkey bars, hit himself right in between the legs. Okay, that part didn't happen, but... (laughs) But you see, God lets His children see the consequences of their sin right now. 
so that they learn that breaking God's rules is not for our fun, it is not for our good, it is not for our welfare. This is why God allows us to see the consequences of our sin as His children. Do you see that God, He was Israel's father. He is our father. And He loves us so very much. And so sometimes He lets us experience the consequences of our sin so that we not be destroyed because of them. One of the most unloving and uncaring things that a parent could ever do is to not let their children see the consequences of their sin. I mean, think of Willy Wonka and the chocolate factory, for example. You know, Willy Wonka opens his factory to a bunch of children, and all of the children are spoiled, rotten brats, except for Charlie. There's a gluttonous Augustus Gloop, and he plunges into his gluttony in the chocolate fat, in the chocolate river, and he gets squeezed up into the tube. And then there is uh, the gum-addicted Violet Beauregard whose bubblegum addiction blows her up into a blueberry bubblegum ball. And there's the TV-obsessed Mike TV who is shrunken by the TV that he's obsessed by. And there's the spoiled, rotten Veruca Salt who is a bad nut and has to get sorted out in the trash heap. And all this is with the help of the Oompa Loompas who work out the consequences of the kids' selfishness. This is what God is doing in our life. That we need, that we be not destroyed by the consequences of our own sin. He's working out the consequences in us now so that we not be destroyed by them later. And we see God not only here as a loving Father, but God also calls Himself a faithful husband. See, God calls Himself a faithful husband to Israel, who oftentimes, and to us, oftentimes are unfaithful spouse to Him. See, they kept on running back to these Canaanite gods. They kept on going back. And in the book of Hosea, there's the picture of Hosea the prophet who marries a prostitute to picture God's unending love for His people, even in their unfaithfulness. And in Hosea chapter 2, verses 14 and 15, he says of his faithless wife... His people, he says, I will allure her and bring her into the wilderness and I will speak tenderly to her. And there I will give her her vineyards and I will make the valley of Achor a door of hope. You see, after Achan was buried, it was called the valley of Achor. Achor and Achan, it means the same thing. It means trouble. See, Joshua says to Achan, why have you brought this trouble upon us? And God says that the valley of trouble will one day be a door of hope. How can this possibly be that the valley of trouble would ever become a door of hope? 
And it is because of Jesus, the sinless, obedient Son of God. He went into the valley of trouble. And all the consequences of our sin were put upon Him. And He was buried with our sins. And He was crushed under the wrath of God in our place. You see, Jesus went to the valley of trouble in our behalf. And so He has made it a door of hope. He is our only hope from the escape from our sin. He is your door of hope that you might not be destroyed by by them. Because we know Three days later, he burst out of the rocks in victory. And that is why the valley of trouble can become a door of hope. And then the very next thing we see in Joshua chapter 8, that God is so overwhelmingly gracious and so overwhelmingly kind and so overwhelmingly generous that He says to Joshua and to the people of Israel who had just sinned, He says to them, Do not fear. Do not be dismayed. I have given this city into your hands. And you shall do to I and its king as you did to Jericho and its king. Only the spoil and the livestock you shall take as plunder for yourselves. What kind of God does this? Who gives the spoils of victory to the very people who had just abused them? It is the God who made the valley of trouble into a door of hope. When I was a young kid, My best friend's dad was the associate pastor at a church. And it came out that he had been embezzling funds from the church. And he publicly repented and was taken out of ministry and stepped down. But there was great pain. And there was great consequences. But that man, decades later now, is a man of humble power who shares the gospel with people and sees the spoils of God's victory because the valley of trouble in Jesus has become a door of hope for us and for Him. God has won the victory and He even gives us the spoils. Namely, the great treasure of the Holy Spirit who is in us and empowering us for ministry. Praise God the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Let us pray. O Lord, our God, our Father, we thank You that You use the consequences of our sin that we not be destroyed by them. And you can do it because you destroyed your son because of our sins. And so, Lord, we pray that it is in Christ alone that our hope is found because he went to the grave for us. So, Lord, may that be the song of our heart this morning that you, Lord Jesus, are our door of hope that our hope is found in You and You alone.